0: you're part of God's Okay, look with me at Acts chapter 2 for just a second. We're going to get kind of technical, and I think it's going to help, though. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42 through 47, and what we've talked about over the last couple weeks is that what we see here in these passages are the foundational moments of the church. And the church devotes itself to four practices at its very beginning, to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, breaking bread, and to prayer. We're spending a couple of weeks on each of those. We're doing prayer next week. Here's what I want you to look at right now. The verses right before that and right after it, and see if they look similar to you. So Acts 2, starting in verse 40, look at this. With many other words, he, Peter, warned them, and he pleaded with them. This is after telling them to be baptized, repent and be baptized. He pleads with them, and he says this. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So that's 2, 40, and 41. And then in 42, we see the four practices. But come with me to 47, the very end of that section. And the Lord... Added to their number daily those who were being saved. Okay, do you see the parallel between those two passages? You see the key words that show up in both places. So in the first, he calls them to save themselves from this corrupt generation through repentance, belief, and baptism to Jesus Christ. And the Lord adds to their number daily those who are being saved. And then you see that same thing repeated at the very end, Acts 2.47, the Lord added daily to their number those who are being saved. So what you have here is like the bread of a sandwich, okay? Um, the brackets to an, to an argument or a point that's being made. So we're going to pay attention to what's on either side of these foundational practices the church committed themselves to, and this is what it is. Okay? As you look at those two verses on either side of this foundational passage, What you should ask yourself is, who is this Lord, and what does this Lord want? What does the Lord want? And you see it answered really clearly here in the text. Our Lord is the Savior. And what he wants is to save people, more and more of them. Apparently, he adds to their number daily those who are being what saved. Yeah. So who is this Lord, and what does He want? Our Lord is the savior of all, and His desire is to save more and more people. That's what He wants. Uh, as we've talked about the last few weeks, we talk about Acts two as the foundation of the church, Jesus Christ, the foundational practices, the framework of the church. But around those, what you might imagine is God comes and wraps his arms around this structure as it's being built. And so it's his force that's drawing and keeping the church together. And the force of his will, his desire for the church, is that through the church, more people would be what? Saved. More people would be saved. Okay. Let me tell you two stories about saving and and see if you notice a difference and a similarity in the stories. The first happened this week, um, Wednesday night, a man on a carnival cruise, Carnival Valor cruise. Did you see this? He was on a cruise with his sister. He gets up, it's, it's late, and he, he goes off to go to the restroom, and he never comes back. And so she reports it, and they can't find him anywhere. This is late Wednesday night, late Wednesday night. Thursday, Carnival reported to the Coast Guard he was missing at 2.30 p.m., He had fallen overboard. He was found alive at 8.30 p.m. Thursday. So the Coast Guard says he was in the water for at least 15 hours, maybe more like 20 to 24 hours in the water. No life jacket. So the Coast Guard released this grainy footage, maybe you've seen this, of the rescue. It's late, it's dark, and, and so it's hard to see the video. But all you can see is this head, Coming up above the water and an arm raising and then the head sinking under the water for seconds at a time. And then coming back up and waving and then sinking underwater. Now just imagine the terror and desperation he felt for hours in that water. 20 miles off the Louisiana coast, not a soul in sight, seeing that cruise ship sail away. Can you imagine it? Let me tell you another story from one of my favorite movies of all time, Sandlot. Um, Sandlot is about, if you haven't seen it, you need to, uh, although the language in Sandlot was not what I remembered as a kid. you like, you know, parents, my generation's parents, why did you let us watch that stuff? Okay, but anyway, Sandlot, it's about these boys who play backyard baseball basically on a Sandlot. And, um, but they also get into a lot of trouble and mischief. And one day it's too hot to play baseball, and so uh, finally they decide they're going to go to the neighborhood pool. Remember this scene? And so Squints. Squints is this little runt who wears these big black-rimmed glasses, so they call him Squints, and he's funny. And so he has a big crush on who? Do you remember? Remember Wendy Peppercorn? It's not peppercorn. It's pepper. I thought it was a lisp. It's it's actually peppercorn. Okay. Wendy Peppercorn is the lifeguard at the pool. Now, here's the problem. Squints can't swim. So he stays in the shallow end, but he looks up at the lifeguard stand, and there's Wendy Peppercorn applying sunscreen, and he can't handle it. He says, I can't take it anymore. And so he climbs out of the shallow end and he walks to the deep end. Remember this? And he goes to the edge of the diving board and he looks at Wendy Peppercorn and he smiles and then he jumps in. But he can't swim, so he sinks straight to the bottom. Okay. So all of his buddies on his little baseball team panic. He can't swim. Help, help, help. And so Wendy Peppercorn dives in. She rescues him, brings him up from the bottom, but he's lifeless. He's not moving. And so she begins to perform mouth to mouth on him. You remember this scene? And so he's looking terrible. Everybody thinks that he's gone. He's a goner. And then she looks away as she's doing mouth to mouth. And he looks up at his friends and he smiles. Remember this? (laughs) And then she comes back in and he just lays this big kiss on her. And this magic moment starts playing, you know, when her lips are close to mine. You remember that? Okay. He gets thrown out and he tells his buddies, I've been planning that for years. Okay. Um, think about the differences and the similarities between those two stories. At their core, both stories actually rely on the terror of death by drowning, right? And yet in one of those stories, that possibility is a frightening reality and prospect. And in the other story, that possibility is a joke, is a joke, something that's laughable. Think about that. in some ways, I think the difference between those two things helps us to see and understand a world that when we talk about their need to be saved, our need to be saved, they don't understand it. To them, it seems like a joke. What do you mean I need to be saved? Saved from what? I'm not drowning. My life is fine. You're not talking about hell, are you? I've heard Christians don't even believe in that anymore. You can't be serious. Right? It's a joke. I came across a story the other day, other day of a guy named Garrett Keel. He was in college. This is about 15 years ago. And he invites his friend from high school to come to this big college party he's going to throw. And he partied pretty hard. And at one time, his friend from high school would, would join him in those parties, so he invites him to come to the college campus to take part in this big party, but his friend Dave comes to the party just to tell his friend Garrett, listen, my life's been changed. I have found this guy named Jesus. I've been saved, and I, I don't do those things anymore. My life is totally different. And Garrett said, Dave, totally ruined the party ruined the party, just sat there the whole time, just ruined it. So afterwards, he sends his friend Dave an email, and he still has the email, so he puts the transcript of the email in this post, and he says, Dave, dude, we gotta talk. It's great and all that you're Mr. Religious now, but I want you to know I'm worried about you. I want you to be careful that you don't go overboard and start getting all weird on me. I mean, I know that going to church is a good thing and that God is real and all that, but But if you don't watch it, you're going to miss out on what life is really all about. I'm not trying to be mean, but I'm really worried about you. I know you're just preaching at me because you're my boy and all that. But I know that I'm okay. God and I have our own little understanding. I know I get crazy now and again, but I don't think God's going to send me to hell for having a good time. I mean, he understands I'm just having a little fun. I'm not a bad person. He knows my heart. I agree. I can get a little crazy now and again, but it's good for the soul, right? Well, enough of that. I'm sure you'll be back to normal soon. Be a good boy and tell Jesus I said hi, Garrett. <laughs> Being saved is a joke, right? What could I possibly need to be saved from? What could I need to be saved from? Okay, so think about this with me. In In a world where that message, you need to be saved. You need to be saved from an eternity apart from your Lord and Savior who wants nothing more than to be with you for all time, to save you from that doom. In a world where that message is a joke and off-putting and seen as judgmental, we have backed away from that message as Christians, haven't we? Now, some of you grew up in a time where that was the only message we preached, and we preached it in pretty toxic ways, in pretty ugly ways, and we turned off more people than we brought in. Okay. But now we're like so put off by the danger of sounding judgmental or being judgmental or worse, being viewed as a joke that Christians have shifted their focus into making the world a better place and have given up on the hope of saving souls or more souls being saved by God through the church. Uh, Like, um, are you familiar with the MacArthur Foundation? Their mission statement is like burned into my brain from years of hearing it on the radio. The MacArthur Foundation's mission is to make the world a more just, verdant, and peaceful place. And I love the sound of that. And I believe the church's job in part is to contribute to making the world a more just, verdant, and peaceful place. And if you read Acts, that happens in two ways. It happens through the labor of saved people in a broken world, but by far, the way it happens is by more and more broken people being saved. And then through those broken people, as that number is magnified and grows, the world is turned upside down. The world changes as people are saved. Look at this with me. This is what Paul tells this young minister, Timothy. Look here with me at this. He says, here's a trustworthy saying. Okay, this means you can count on this. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sinners who would believe in him and receive eternal life. And then in chapter 2, he tells the church, you and me, is what he says to this young minister, Timothy. He tells the church to pray for everybody you know because of this. To pray for everybody you know. And this is why. He says, this is good that you pray for everybody, and it pleases God our Savior. Remember, good and glorifying. So praying for everybody pleases God. Pleases God our Savior who wants what? Who wants all people to be saved. How? To come to the knowledge of the truth. For there's one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who did what? He gave himself as a ransom for all people, to buy them back from captivity or slavery. He came for the sole purpose of saving them from doom and powers that have them enslaved. That's why he came. That was his calling, to save sinners. He goes on, this has been witnessed now at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. The message, uh, Eugene Peterson's translation puts this Really well, so I want you to see it, his his version of it, because it's so good, and you'll remember. Look at look what he says. He God wants not only us, that's people who are saved in the church, the people he's talking to in this letter. He wants not only us; he wants everyone saved. You know, everyone to get to know the truth that we have learned that there's one God and only one, and one priest mediator between God and us, Jesus. Who offered himself in exchange for everyone held captive by sin to set them free? Eventually, the news is going to get out. This and this only has been my appointed work getting this news out to those who have never heard of God and explaining how it works by simple faith and plain truth. Paul says, my point is to get this message out. What's the message? There is a Lord. Who is he? He's the savior. What's he done? He has saved you and you need to be saved. That's it. Um, think this talk about saving in, in the modern world where that's viewed as judgmental or as a joke, the language of our need to be saved makes some believe that our God is a tyrant. Our, a tyrant who would dare to consider to punish those whose lives are not united to him through his son, Jesus Christ. How, how could he, what kind of God would do that? But let me show you this this passage here in Ezekiel. I could show you countless passages about the character of God. I just want to be really clear, though, this morning about who God actually is and what God actually wants. Look at this with me in Ezekiel. Do I take any pleasure, this is the Lord, in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? He goes on to say this later in the chapter. So rid yourselves... Of all the offenses that you've committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. For the record, that's something only God can give somebody in text. Why will you die, people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. You know, this is what God wants. This is who God is. He's the God who wants more than anything in this world for more and more people to be saved and united to him. That's what he wants. So Garrett Kill, that guy I mentioned earlier, his friend Dave came to the party. His, his friend's words that night just kind of haunted him. He sent that email, he wrote his friend off, but then his, his friend's words just couldn't get him out of his head. He just kept thinking about what his friend had said about his need to be saved and it was really bothering him and he didn't like it, so he locked himself in his closet and he said, "'Okay, God, if you're real, show me something.'" And according to him, at that moment, he looked down in his closet, and beneath the mounds of clothes and books from school, there was this old Bible his parents had given him when he went off to college. So he picked it up, and he opened, and the passage he read was that one from Ezekiel. Repent and live, for I take no pleasure in the death of anyone. And and now Garrett is a minister in the Washington, D.C. area. And it's kind of like... (laughs) I just just, salvation is a mysterious thing the process of salvation is not mysterious Peter makes that really clear if you want to be saved by the Lord who has died and been raised on your behalf what you must do is repent and be baptized into him for the forgiveness of your sins to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to be saved now and forever I mean that's clear that's clear But how that message gets into somebody's heart and not somebody else, how it works on them over time and starts to torment them until they can't rid themselves of it and lock themselves in the closet, that, you know, is a mysterious thing. And it's clear that that's a work of the Lord. It's a work of the Lord. But that is what the Lord wants to do. That's the work the Lord delights in. Paul says, you and I have a part in that. We may plant some seeds, we may water it, but God's going to make it grow. But pay attention, you got to plant some seeds. You got to water it. That's part of your calling as the people of God, you know, living in this house that he is building is to do your part so that he might grow this thing. He might add more souls to his church. I've told uh, stories of revival. Y'all know revival is just a, it's a reality, to be honest, a reality in the history of the church that I deeply long for us to see here at Highland and in our world today. There was a revival that took place in the Hebrides Islands off the coast of Scotland, late 1940s, early 1950s, where just from town to town, village to village on this little island, the Holy Spirit broke out in amazing ways. And one of those stories I'll never forget. I've told you some of them before. It's this little church in Habas. It's a little village in the Hebrides. And these old-timers have been coming together to pray midweek, late at night, every week for God to pour out a spirit and to save the people and, and the Hebrides around them. But nothing was happening, basically. But They were devoted to praying for this, and we're going to talk about prayer next week. And so one Sunday, they come to church, little people from the village, and they just walk to church. It's this little like, schoolhouse-looking church, pretty small. They just walk there. And there's all these vehicles parked outside the building that they don't recognize, just countless vehicles, more vehicles than they had ever seen there at church. And they come into the church, and they can't get through the doors because there's so many visitors from neighboring villages who have come, drawn by something they can't explain to come to church that day. I mean, can you imagine it? If you came to church at Highland and you couldn't find a parking spot and you couldn't get inside the doors because there were so many people from Memphis who had just been compelled by the Holy Spirit to come and hear a word from the Lord that day, can you imagine that? And yet the history of church proves again and again like we see here in Acts uh, 2 when 3,000 people came in that day. Where do you think they put 3,000? they are church would have been so full they wouldn't have had any place for him. Like the history of the church proves again and again that when we see God's character most clearly and most powerfully, what it leads to are more and more souls being saved. More and more. And it's possible here. It's possible here. I mean, I want that truth, that reality of God's great desire to save more and more people to soak into the bones of this church. I wanted to saturate and marinate every single thing that we do here, from the red tubs to the turkey bags to adoption and foster care to special needs ministry to your small group and Sunday school class till it marinates everything, till it gets into your bones, and then it infects every conversation you have every text message you send, every water cooler conversation or conversation you have on the, ball, on the ball field, behind every word that you say is this compelling desire you feel from the Lord that our God wants more than anything to save this person who is his child. Amen. What would happen? What would happen if that took us over the desire of the Lord? Um... I'll tell you, when you're going to give today to this Life Giving Sunday, I, have, I am so grateful for the great generosity of this church. And our partners, I want to be really clear, they're making a difference in the world, making the world better. Absolutely. But we partner with them because each of them care above all that souls that are lost are found in Jesus Christ and saved. And that's worth investing in this morning. I want to thank you. I'll leave you with a story. A friend of mine, minister in Nashville area, Dave Clayton, maybe some of you know his name, uh, told a story some time ago about waking up early in the morning to pray, and uh, he's got three boys in his house, and so early in the morning is the only time (laughs) to get alone with the Lord. I know about that. So he's up early in the morning praying. He's praying for his city. He's praying for his church. He's praying for his family he says he felt this burden which pressed on him, which he believed to be from the Lord. And it was like the Lord was saying to him, Dave, what would you do if you could not find your youngest son? If your youngest son was lost and you didn't know where he was, what would you do? He said he broke down. Say, God, there's nothing I wouldn't do. There's no cost. There's no expense I wouldn't spend. There's no sacrifice I wouldn't make. There's no effort I wouldn't go to. I would search the world to find him if he was missing. And he said that at that moment, he felt the Lord saying to him, that is exactly how I feel about everyone in this city who does not yet know my name. Go find him." Let me say a prayer over you, Church. God, our great desire as a church is to glorify you. God, I'm, I'm sure that there are those in this room this morning who feel distant from you, Lord. I pray, God, that you would draw them by your power and might towards your heart. That you would convict them of their need to be saved and that they would find salvation in your son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray for this church that we would be a beacon of that message of salvation that you have given to your people, and that we would preach it near and far in Memphis and around the world. I pray to that end for our missionaries, that they would have boldness and courage to share the good news of Jesus, his message of salvation in a world that is lost and broken. And God, I pray all this to your glory, and in the name of your son, Jesus, amen.